0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming back to the program uh, Dr. Antonia Ruppel uh, with LMU Munich and Oxford University. Antonia, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Raj. It's so nice to be back.
0: It's nice to have you back. For those of you listening today, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, this podcast uh, is form of New Books in Hindu Studies. Um, And it's becoming more broadly even developments or new developments in Hindu studies or study of Indian religion in general. And so that gives us a little more range of motion to investigate all that's going on. Having said that, um, Antonia's book that we covered, uh, I believe last year, uh, was a Sanskrit reader. Uh, It was the Cambridge Introduction to Sanskrit, I believe it was 2017. And for a language that is 3,000 years old. Three years is definitely a, a new book in that field, <laughs> wouldn't you say? <laughs> so we're just going to talk a little bit about Sanskrit, the nature of Sanskrit, um, uh, the significance of Sanskrit, what, what, uh, why one may want to learn it, uh, what texts we have in it, and maybe talk about ways in which the listenership can go about learning Sanskrit. How does that sound?
1: Sounds great to me.
0: So obviously I know nothing about Sanskrit, so what is Sanskrit? <laughs>
1: So Sanskrit is a language, um, or rather, um, mostly when we talk about Sanskrit, we mean two languages. Um, First of all, uh, what more strictly speaking is called Vedic, which is the language of the um, oldest uh, scriptures that we find in the Indian subcontinent. And it was a language of of religion, of of ceremony, of philosophy that then at some point was uh, codified by a grammarian known by the name of Panini. This was around 2,500 years ago. And basically what he tried to do was to make sure that this this language of these ancient but still fundamentally important um, uh, religious ceremonial texts, uh, he wanted to try and make sure that it remained understood, and so he was in a tradition of grammarians who tried to sum up the, or, well, not try to, very successfully summed up the rules of uh, this ancient language. But um, his his grammar then had the effect that people didn't just um, uh, see this list of rules as something that people had once followed a long time ago, and that they needed to know about if they wanted to understand the ancient texts. But they used those rules um, from Panini's times on, basically, to um, compose Sanskrit texts of their own. So um, after Panini, we call this language Sanskrit proper. And uh, Panini's work has had the effect that basically since around 2,500 years ago, people have used these rules to compose Sanskrit, to write Sanskrit. Uh, And so for 2,500 years, we've had texts following one set of rules, one basically one grammar. Um, And so if you learn Sanskrit, you can read texts from a period that spans more than two millennia. And it's a language that is used for literature, for for epics, so for very long stories, for very short stories, you find uh, drama, so you find plays in it. Um, you find it used for all sorts of scientific non-fiction treatises. So you get um, uh, law, you get mathematics, you get um, philosophy, uh, you get treatises about how to how to act well, both in the private sphere and in the public sphere. So about good behavior and about politics. Um, my nutshell basically is that. There isn't really any literary genre that doesn't
0: exist in Sanskrit. And so for the last uh, 25 centuries or so, Mm -hmm. um, has Sanskrit uh, essentially functioned as a language for written texts?
1: Um, In more recent times, yes. It's actually not entirely clear when writing first came to India, or when it first started being used in India, and also when it started being used for Sanskrit, because um, the the oldest traditions that we have, so the the, the Vedic traditions, the um, the Rig Veda, the oldest corpus of Sanskrit, of of, of what Vedic hymns, um, was a purely oral tradition for many, many centuries. And similarly with the epics, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, which are also two very well-known stories, those were also oral in origin. Um, And at some point um, in the past, I would say, you know, uh, past two millennia, um, writing then became a, a common medium for Sanskrit texts. Um, but that doesn't mean that necessarily the the Vedic and the the epic traditions just switched to a written medium. There was a um, oral tradition that survived alongside survived and flourished alongside the written tradition for a very long time.
0: So, um, uh, be it written or oral, uh, would you mm-hmm. say Sanskrit is primarily for composition rather than conversation?
1: Um. It. Hmm. That is, that is a tricky question. That's a very good question. Because, um, so for people like, like me, um, who use Sanskrit mostly in an in a, um, academic setting, um, for me, Sanskrit is like the other ancient languages that I know, like Latin or like ancient Greek, in that, yes, for me, it is a language that I mostly read. So I, I learned Sanskrit in order to be able to access these ancient texts and to be able to understand them directly without the the sort of, um, you know, mediacy of a translation. However, there is a very big um, spoken Sanskrit movement. And um, there are several things to be said for that. So, for example, if you are able to speak a language actively, then the kind of passive skills that you need in order to be able to read an ancient text um, are going to be much more solid, much more in place. So if I, if I actually have um, had conversations in Sanskrit, if I actually have had to think about how do I say this? How do I phrase that? Then um, it's, it's easier for me to um, not just understand these ancient texts, but maybe also to see a few more nuances. However, having, having said that, and, and this, is, this is something that you find both for Sanskrit and then you find a lot of, you know, spoken Latin is a big movement, um, uh, spoken ancient Greek, I think a little less so, but it exists. Um, uh, but there is this issue that um, uh, the, the biggest spoken Sanskrit movements to an extent or to quite an extent try to... Um, simplify the language so that it can be spoken in an everyday context. So when I, when I talk to someone, you know, when I, for example, when I order um, a pizza or or a curry, um, then I'm probably just going to say something very simple, very straightforward, not ornate, not, not um, nicely, intricately crafted, but rather I'm just going to say something straightforward and simple. And um, for this kind of purpose, so for most purposes of spoken language, we need something quite different from uh, the Sanskrit language that we find in the the literature that has survived throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia. Um, One of the reasons why it has survived is that people felt that these texts were um, worth preserving, not just for what they said, but also for the beauty of how they said it. So the the old, um, the oldest sources that we have are all quite intricately crafted and quite different from the spoken Sanskrit that you find very often nowadays. Having, having said that, um, there are ma- quite a few speakers of spoken Sanskrit at this point who I think are fully able to speak in as ornate and as beautiful and as literary a way as many of the ancient authors were but um, it's something where different people have different priorities. And I would say my priorities to this point are still um, uh, the Sanskrit texts that I aim to, to read and understand.
0: So um, could you tell us a little bit about um, uh, sort of the, the features of Sanskrit, maybe in relation to... One who may wish to uh, embark on a journey to learn it. So, uh, who might be uh, well suited or not to go about learning Sanskrit? Or uh, may might it be advantageous to have an Indian vernacular or not? Or um, you know, without meaning mm. your question, can you say something about that?
1: Right. Um, so, first of all, you know, who is suited to learning Sanskrit? I think. I think anyone, any human is suited to learn a language because, you know, all of us speak languages um, and um, obviously there's a difference between the language that we learn just listening to our parents and our, our environment when we're little and then languages that we learn in a, in a sort of school or academic environment later on. Um, but I would say that um, anyone can learn Sanskrit to some extent and some will learn it, um, you know, further or more than others. There are plenty of people, especially in, um, well, in, not especially in academia, but also in academia whose Sanskrit is far better than mine. And still, I would say that, you know, I know Sanskrit to an extent that that is good, is suitable for me. So I would say that, um, first of all, if you Um, uh, think you would like to learn a language, you would like to learn Sanskrit, but think that um, you're never going to master it, um, don't worry, mastery comes at many, many levels. And even if you uh, learn it to the extent that you can read simple texts, there are many simple texts um, that are quite rewarding and just simply fun to read. Um, Now the question of what might help you learn Sanskrit, um, I would say that yes, absolutely speaking, uh, a modern, uh, especially northern Indian language, definitely helps because um, uh, the uh, uh, the northern Indian languages are um, so languages such as such as Hindi, um, Bengali, uh, Gujarati, and so on. They are they are um, related to Sanskrit. Um, obviously, if you know if you know well, perhaps not obviously, but if you know Hindi, then you already know the script that Sanskrit is typically written in these days, namely the Devanagari. Um, so that's a definite advantage. Sometimes I find that knowing a modern Indian language can be a little bit of a disadvantage, actually, because um, quite a few words that that you have, for example, in Hindi, that were taken over from Sanskrit have changed their meaning. And so some words you'll basically have to have to learn a slightly different meaning. You'll have to relearn the meaning for what they for what these words are doing, or what they mean, or how they're used in Sanskrit. So um, if you do not know any modern Indian languages, then that doesn't necessarily mean you have a you have a huge disadvantage. Um, I have had students who um, knew modern Indian languages, I have I had students who knew other Indo-European languages such as Latin or Greek, I've had students um, who didn't know any foreign languages, so who spoke who spoke English and that was it. Um, and I find that if you do it the right way, if you do it step by step, um, if you don't try to hurry it too much, if you do it methodically, then basically anyone can learn Sanskrit. And um, the,
0: the Yeah? No, please go on.
1: The, the the final part of your language, you know, who might who might profit from it? Um well in my opinion, pretty much everyone, as trite as that sounds, because um there is just and I'm I'm happy to, you know, to 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 stop here or to go into more detail, but I think there is just so much to be learned. From, um, uh, from a language that has such huge cultural implications and such huge cultural breadth, um, that there's basically something in it for, for everyone.
0: There's so many dimensions to this enterprise of um, learning Sanskrit. There's yeah. The dim- yeah. yeah, there's the dimension of um, access to worlds of, of thought and practice, uh, content, narrative. Uh, there's this dimension of, um, of of understanding language and grammar and syntax. Um, and then there's the dimension of pedagogy, of, you know, how to go about mm. learning it and tools. And so um, maybe let's talk a little bit more about the first dimension, because, you know, our listeners uh, may or may not realize, I'm sure we have a, a wide array of Uh, keen undergrads, uh, grad students, specialists, generalists, continuing studies folks, folks who have a a natural interest um, in all things Indian, uh, whether they're heritage learners or not. And so um, uh, this language uh, affords access to everything from uh, profound philosophical musings of the Upanishads uh, to liturgical texts, to Vedic hymns, uh to some of the most exquisite narrative on the planet uh in the epics uh narratives to so, as you say a tree disease like you may you may go one may go into a yoga studio and there will be an invocation to Patanjali in what in Sanskrit um, yes yes we all have this word karma <laughs>
1: indeed <laughs> it's, it's
0: good karma <laughs> and, and what is that that is from a an, uh that is uh that is an anglicization of, a, of, a, of an ancient Sanskrit word that is um, um, indispensable, uh, inextricable from a sort of philosophical religious milieu. And so what drew you in? You know, what is it that, that drives, or, or at least originally um, uh, drove your, your, your pursuit of this language? Was it access to certain texts, a certain world? Was it just the intricacies of the language itself? Uh, You know, could you tell us more about that?
1: Mm. Well, my path into Sanskrit was a very, very fortunate slippery slope. Uh, So by training, I am a classicist, which means that um, uh, as for my undergrad and also my other degrees, basically what I studied was uh, Latin, ancient Greek and the civilizations that they that they represented, that they give us access to. And I was particularly interested in uh, the language side of things, so the philology or linguistic side of things. And in my very first term, um, we uh, had um, uh, a lecture where the, the word Sanskrit was was mentioned, and so it was described as this language that was related to Latin and Greek. And um, so we there find these forms that are, you know, systematically similar to. Latin and Greek and and other related languages. And I had never heard of this this language. I had never heard the word Sanskrit before. And I um, talked to some of my my professors at the time and um, uh, asked, you know, what is this Sanskrit thing and would it be useful to learn? And one of them then said, oh, Sanskrit is always useful, um, and gave me his spare copy of Michael Coulson's um, Teach Yourself Sanskrit. And oh so... you.
0: i i'm i'm, I'm I, sorry i can't help myself i have <laughs> yeah. i ha maybe i'll I'll flesh it out later, but I have the exact same experience um, really <laughs> i showed up late i showed up late second week of uh, intro Sanskrit fifteen years ago gem uh, of a Gemma teacher uh, libby Mills at the University of Toronto I think she's still there i just i just can't Shake the synchronicity, so I have to get this out so I can continue listening. Um, I showed up. I had uh, I I abandoned my undergrad. I worked for a while. I came back. I thought, let me take three courses. I took three courses. I was happy with three courses. And then in week two, I thought, well, let me check out the Sanskrit course. I checked it out, and there were no books left at the library, and I was a week behind. Didn't know the script. And Libby Mills basically said, uh, I wasn't even officially enrolled. She said, you know, you borrow my copy of the book and bring it back Monday and that act of kindness (laughs) (laughs) uh, had far reaching consequences it it was like it was like the divine intervened and said you you you, uh you pathetic chap that i don't know who's a week late for a course and not even enrolled who's just you know fumbling about here you take my personal copy of the book and i'm like uh now uh you know sanskrit owns me now i have no choice but to return (laughs) <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt but i couldn 't i no, couldn't no, shake this, the synchronicity
1: This, this is wonderful i 'm so happy to hear that there's a that there 's a parallel to this and and i I suspect that there 's actually quite a few people like you and me who sort of came to Sanskrit by chance because um um, so when I when I was in, in in secondary school, you know, this was nothing that was ever that was ever mentioned, um, and I don't think that many people um, who come to um, university as 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 freshers as as freshmen um, uh, know about it. At least you know, not in. I would say definitely not in, 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 in Germany where I went to school. Um, I don't, I don't know about the UK where I went to university, but, um, it's just not something that you encounter in school. And so you don't know that this is something that you might want to, might want to study in in quite a bit of detail later on. But so I, I basically, I I started out with Michael Coulson's Teach Yourself Sanskrit and um, that book has, has, has many, many, many strengths. Um, and it did wonders for me. Um, it also has a, a, a f- few reasons for, for frustration uh, inbuilt. Um, uh, but, but anyway, um, I think I, I did reasonably well working through this book, um, but I was still doing my undergrad in classics, and there was just a, a minimal Sanskrit element built in in the, in the third and, and final year of, of The Bachelor, um, where we did a little bit of Vedic. But this was, once again, entirely from a linguistic point of view. Um, then I, I extended my studies a little bit, but mostly what I was doing was Vedic because, um, still this was from a, from a linguistic point of view. And for linguists, it's the, it's always the oldest levels of a language that are the most interesting. And so if you study, um, uh, uh, Sanskrit from a, from a linguistic point of view, mostly what you do is study Vedic. And so that's what I did for part of my, my masters. And then for my PhD, I looked at a um, syntactic construction, an Indo-European syntactic construction that exists in several Indo-European languages. And it's probably most prominent in Latin, Greek, and Vedic, and later Sanskrit. So that's what I looked at. Those are the three languages that I looked at. And um, then I um, was nearing the end of, well, not the end of my PhD, but the end of my PhD funding and so I was applying for jobs and this, this wonderful post came up at Cornell University in the U.S., which was for a lecturer in Latin, Greek and Sanskrit. And um, I applied and I was invited for an interview. Um, my, my parents said, oh, this is wonderful. You know, it's wonderful practice for you having an interview. Um, obviously, you're not going to get the job, but I mean, hey, this is a this is great experience. Um, and, um, I remember they basically said, you know, we are, we are, satisfied that you can teach Latin and Greek because there's plenty of, 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 of evidence for that, but we'd like you to teach a Sanskrit lesson, um, because I'd never done that before. And so I prepared, um, a lesson in great detail. And if you teach something for the first time, you probably over-prepare a little bit. And I remember um, running into someone in the um, uh, Classics Faculty Library relatively late at night who saw me sort of poring over my notes and said, Antonia, what are you doing? And I told her. And I said, you know, I'm supposed to teach Sanskrit. And she said, Antonia, can you teach Sanskrit? And I said, well, I guess we'll find out. Um, and um, then the, the wonderful, wonderful thing happened that I um, uh, got the job, got the post. This was in 2005. And um, in the beginning, it was a very steep learning curve because I, I knew Sanskrit, but I'd never, I'd never taught it. And the form of the language that I'd mostly worked on was Vedic. And the, the first course that I taught, or all the courses that I taught regularly were introductions to classical Sanskrit and um, so I was there um, always making sure in the beginning it really was a case of me always staying ahead a couple of steps of my of my students Um, and um, I would like to think that it very quickly um, got better that I really found my footing but I in the process of doing that found that um, Um, The the teaching materials that I had available to teach Latin and Greek were, you know, were were great. I loved them. Um, They were pedagogically great fun. The students liked them. They were suitable for the students. But I couldn't really find a Sanskrit textbook that I I found worked for all of my students, who had a huge variety of background, much bigger variety than, for example, for classics. Um, And um, so I started preparing lots and lots of resources uh, myself. And at some point, um, I talked to a friend of mine um, from from Cambridge, who um, works for Cambridge University Press, and I told him sort of how things were, what was up. And he said, oh, you know, if you're making all these Sanskrit resources, um, a colleague of mine is interested in um, publishing a Sanskrit textbook, should I put the two of you in touch? And so he did that. And then many years later, the result of this was the Cambridge Introduction to Sanskrit, And basically the work on that book had the effect that I switched in my, in my own private work and my writing and my research more and more from, um, from classics from Latin and Greek to Sanskrit and so now I've reached a point where someone, people ask me, well, you're, you're sort of a, a bit of a classicist as well, aren't you? And I'm like, of course I'm a classicist. That's what all my degrees are in. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of still what I am, but actually what I, what I, what I do these days and perhaps what I'm known best for is just sort of the, the Sanskrit side of me.
0: So many fascinating threads there. Um <laughs> What, uh, like there's so much there, you know. Let me keep it focused before we we just mm. fall off a cliff. Um, Sorry, that was a very long answer. No, 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 that, no, no. That was no, the past no, twenty years. That was so. that was great. No, no. What I mean to say is, where to dive in? Let's keep it a little focused around the actual um, uh, around the actual uh, Cambridge Introduction uh, to Sanskrit the Reader. Mm. So, so um, it's great that you. Uh, first of all, m- Michael Coulson is. Uh, Actually, that was my first Sanskrit um, text as well, and that's the one that Libby Mills had so generously um, loaned me that fateful weekend uh, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, um, you know, of course, there were moments of frustration as well with that, and it seems that uh, any Sanskrit text you will use. Um, There'll be uh, pros and cons, uh, also depending on uh, learning styles and aptitudes and whatnot. But it's it's interesting that you built the. It, I love that this reader uh, arose organically from your journey with your students, and it was a mm. result of, of of you found you learned Sanskrit, but you learned how to teach Sanskrit effectively based on the trial by fire, if you will, um, the Agni <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what? Um, what is different about this reader? What are the advantages, or how is it laid out, or uh, maybe even say something about the fact that there is a, a website associated with it? Tell us about the reader.
1: Well, um, I, I think of it um, as a this as, think of it as a textbook rather than as a reader, because for me, a reader is something where you have mostly texts to read rather than you know an introduction to the grammar. But um, that's that's just uh, me being being picky. Sorry. Um, so. Basically, what I found um, I really liked about the other textbooks I was using was that there was a lot of, um, well, there were a lot of texts to read. There were a lot of um, original uh, Latin and and Greek extracts that were prepared in such a way that a student who was at, you know, that point of their language learning uh, uh, career, so who were, you know, in Chapter Five of this book, or Chapter Seven of that book, so the texts were prepared in such a way that these students could read those texts with the um, with the annotations that were given to them and I thought that was so important because at least for those of us for whom the goal in learning an ancient language is to be able to read those texts, it's really really frustrating if we you know teach you the language and then for the first year or so keep you away from the actual language and just give you exercises, language exercises that were written specifically for your level by the author of the textbook. Because authors of textbooks may be good pedagogues, but they're rarely ever also good poets, for example. I definitely, unfortunately, am very much not a poet. Um, And so one thing that I did was from very, very early on in the book, I just put in as many readings as I could. So as many original Sanskrit passages as I could simply because, um, it ke- kind of keeps your eye on, on the goal. You know, you're constantly reminded of this is what I'm trying to, trying to achieve. This is why I'm doing this. Uh, and also independently from that simply because it's enjoyable. I mean, these texts, there is a reason why they were preserved over such a huge period of time. Um, uh, so that was one thing. And then the other thing I felt was, um, I come to Sanskrit from uh, a linguistic, from a comparative linguistic background. And so for me, it was always extremely helpful to be able to see um, what, was, what was new about the language that I was learning, but what I perhaps already, already did know from the languages I already spoke. So for example, um, if, you, if you learn Latin um, and you're a native speaker of German, German has four cases. Latin has five. So the concept of a case um, uh, uh, is something that um, a German speaker would already would already understand. And then all I need to do as a Latin teacher in a German environment is just to tell people, right? And then there is another case. You know, the, these are the cases you already know. Look, here's how you know them. Um, um, and this is uh, the way in which Latin is different. Um, and so um, I try to do this exact thing. But of course, not for German speakers, the book isn't in German, it's in in English. Um, I tried to show English speakers what they already knew about language structures, how language expresses um, uh, information, and showed them um, what they already knew. And then basically said... And, you know, in here, in this area, this is where uh, English and Sanskrit do the exact same thing. But note that in that area, other area, uh, Sanskrit and English are different. So, for example, um, uh, endings, endings. An ending is a grammatical concept. It's basically the little thing at the end of a word that um, uh, indicates um, who is doing something, for whom something is done, and so on. So, for example, I would say, I go, you go, but he goes. So this ending, goes, indicates to me that I'm talking not about myself, I'm not addressing someone, but I'm talking about a third person, I'm talking about someone else. Now this ending is how um, English encodes this grammatical information. We're talking about a third person, we're talking about someone else. And Sanskrit does the exact same thing, except that Sanskrit has endings, not just for the third person, but it also uses endings for the first person and for the second person. So it doesn't just have the equivalent of this S, but it also, when you say I go or you go, you would also add an ending. Now, you still need to memorize these endings, but the concept of what an ending is, look, you already know that from your own language. And so I try to do that across the book um, to show people what they already knew um, and to allow them to understand what was going on whenever that was possible, rather than simply to ask them to memorize something, because I personally find that With rote memorization, if I just if I just memorize something, um, that knowledge can I can find that it's lost at some point. Whereas if I understand something, even if I don't remember that particular detail, um, I'm still always able to reconstruct the information in my head because I understand the system that underlies. a particular construction, a particular expression, and so on and so on. So I try to maximize understanding and thereby minimize um, uh, the need for rote memorization.
0: So part of the those were
1: basically the two main things that I that I tried to do differently.
0: Yes, I mean part of um, it should go without saying that I that I, I personally feel the book is well set up, uh, but also let me let me indicate that. I Thank you. <laughs> Uh, you're welcome, thank you. <laughs> it's a service to our field uh, but also I also should say that um in 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 my capacity as host for new books and Hindu studies, um I take it as my role to invite uh, new developments, new scholarship from credible presses, reputable presses, irrespective of my views, for example. I may be in my personal scholarship um, and part of why I'm sharing this is not because of my exchange with, um, with, with Antonia. It's because of um, some emails I've gotten as of late, but I personally take issue with the study of Puranas uh, and the ways in which historicism and philology has eclipsed looking at the, the, the literary narrative dimensions of the text. Having said that, I have um, fine folks on this podcast all the time who are gifted Uh at looking um, historically material or philologically and so mm. irrespective of whether i i have folks on the podcast i may not agree with their findings or their methods um, or, or 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 their politics what have you but that my role is to create uh, a safe and inclusive space so that um the general public and interested specialists in general and uh, generalists can 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 know and understand and value what we do in terms of producing knowledge about Indian religions, um, I just felt inspired to share important. that. Yeah, because it's not it's not a question of factions for me. It's a question of let's have amicable conversation about what people are doing uh, with um, these texts, these concepts. Having said that, I, I personally uh, quite value this enterprise of. Um, this mission uh, that resulted in the Cambridge introduction to to Sanskrit, Uh, this text. Thank you for the correction, more than reader. It's definitely a text. Uh, If you go to uh, www.cambridge-sanskrit.org, there is uh, a wealth of resources that accompanies this text. So tell us about, uh, I mean, there are videos there. There, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. This is much more than a text.
1: Well, basically, what I, what I found over the course of the years is that there are so many people who want to learn Sanskrit, um, but who are not affiliated with um, a university or any kind of institution where they could study Sanskrit, or, you know, many universities that people are affiliated with do not offer Sanskrit. Um, and so what I wanted to do was basically recreate the sorts of things that my own students would get from me in the classroom as best I could um, using, using online materials, using online resources. And so the videos, for example, they're, they're very bare bones. They're just basically um, uh, PowerPoint presentations that I've, that I've narrated and turned into videos and put up on YouTube. Um, um, and uh, th- in those, I basically say the sort, exactly the, the, the kind of thing that I would say if I was standing in front of you, um, at the board in a, in a classroom and was introducing you to new grammatical material. Um, the difference, of course, is that, you know, in, you, you can never quite replace a classroom um, and you cannot um, raise your hand and ask a question right away. But apart from that, those videos um, uh, basically give you um, an electronic version of, of me as a teacher. Um, and um, I'm hoping that that's, you know, going to help some people with learning Sanskrit and the the videos are surprisingly popular. I mean, these are grammar videos in an ancient language. and We just hit 75,000 hits. So um, I must admit that I'm
0: quite pleased by that. And um,
1: (laughs) yes, I I am vain enough to be aware of this number.
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) You, You are savvy enough, shall we say.
1: Um, uh, thank you. That's such. A, that's such. A, that's a. That's a much nicer way of thinking of it.
0: Well, um, uh, given that I study frame narratives professionally, I'm not trying to do reframing situations, but. <laughs> <aren't. laughs>
1: well played. Yes. Well done. <laughs> um, well, so there, there are those videos, um, um, and then I find that um, another part of um, of uh, the, the whole learning process, um, especially with a language that has so many endings as I, the, the things that I just mentioned as Sanskrit, there's a lot of memorization involved. And I personally find that I memorize best from, from, from flashcards. Um, I still have many, many, um, little, uh, cardboard boxes with, with actual paper flashcards or sort of cardboard flashcards that I've made, but, um, um, uh, in the meantime, online flashcards have become a thing or they have been a thing for, for, for quite a few years now. And so I basically just created flashcards for all the forms that you need to learn um, um, as part of the um, Cambridge Introduction to Sanskrit and then also of all the vocab. And then I'm, uh, I, I put up a couple of uh, just printable handouts. So for things where it's, it's just very useful to have, um, for example, um, sheets where you can um, practice the, the the writing, practice the divanagari. Um Then I put up a simple um, reference grammar um, also as a, just a printable PDF because I find that when you're reading something, whether it's a practice passage in a book or you're re- reading an actual text, having something simple directly by your side on the table in front of you where you can simply and quickly check a particular form um, that's just very helpful because it doesn't slow you down as much as it would to go to another book and find the right page or something. I made a couple of grammar posters um, that you can just um, you know put up on your wall. They're basically you know all the noun endings, all the verb forms, all the um, sandhi, which is um, something that is very prominent in Sanskrit, which is basically changes to words when they meet other words um and uh, then I have my fourth poster is just for the for the for the script for the devanagari so i just put up all these things so that people who cannot um attend a regular sanskrit class can nevertheless have something that comes at least close to it and then to sort of round that off, I've been offering free online classes, um, well, classes, sort of in quotation marks, um, um, that that you know anyone can sign up to. And the I say class in quotation marks because they don't actually involve any any direct teaching with me. It's just that I um, basically set a pace and I send an email around once a week and say, I think for this week the a good chunk of material to look at is this and here are the res- the resources that i've put up online to cover this chunk of material um, and you know if you've got questions i've set up a facebook group where anyone can ask their grammar questions and i or other group members can reply to them so i try to c- recreate what a classroom offers as best i could using these online means Well,
0: there's um sanskrit is um in my view, uh, I don't think I'm particularly gifted uh, at languages. Having said that, I do, I do share your view that just anybody who applies himself can learn um, rudimentary sensory at least. I mean, one doesn't need to rival kalidasa in their mastery of the language. Yes. Uh, I, I myself use it primarily to read out of it for my work. Um, I do have a fair bit of background in uh, intoning and chanting in, in other circuits. But mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't, um, you know, I wouldn't be fluent enough to read Sanskrit the way I read a novel, for example. Um, nor is that how I use Sanskrit. Um, but it's it's know mean. Yeah, yeah, it's a very complicated language that requires a fair deal of um, support and expertise, um, and it's not insurmountable. Uh, it, uh, in my view it is the learning paradigm that that obviously you know the, the desire the will the has to be there for one to undertake something like learning a language um, but provided the individual is intent on learning it you know if the seed is intent on sprouting it's the soil that makes all of the difference it's the instructor that 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 that, that Uh, circumstance sends you it's the paradigm it's the text and there is no perfect Sanskrit text obviously and there is no No. replacement from for sitting there having the the expert attention of somebody you know from one to the other the entire act of linear learning is, is literally called in Sanskrit from one to the other you know and and that cannot be replaced having said that certainly there arises for anyone studying Sanskrit, a wish list. Gee, I, I think of it as an app, right? I wish the mm-hmm. app did this. And then there's an upgrade. two months later, and the app does that now, I wish, I wish it did this. I wish it did this. Wouldn't this be nice. Wouldn't this be nice. And this, this is, the, this is what excites me about the work that you're doing because it, it's, it, 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 it's interesting to me as a Sanskritist, but it's, For somebody who enjoys teaching and pedagogy and sort of um, catering to the needs of groups in different ways, this is what this is. It is an interactive wish list um, of how people might best learn Sanskrit, something along those lines. Would that resonate (laughs) with you? Um, Well,
1: that is definitely the aim, you know, I... I, um, uh, I'm, I'm not just a teacher. I'm also a learner of languages. Um, and um, so I, I basically went on the basis of what do I, what would, what would I need um, combined with what have I seen um, my students uh, needing? So what have I seen has worked for my students? What have I seen, um, you know, was formerly lacking in my own classes that I needed to, to provide for my students? Um, what is maybe not absolutely necessary, but just makes it easier. Um, and um, I always believe in, you know, making certain things that can be easier and actually making them easier. And so um, that creating um, a complete learning environment that is complete, not just for one type of learner, but ideally for, for a couple of sort of learning types, that was, that was the goal. And it would make me very happy to know that, um, uh, for, for at least for some people, um, uh, they feel that I've reached or come close to that goal and have created an environment in which they um, are able to learn Sanskrit or feel that they have been able to learn Sanskrit to the level um, that they were hoping for.
0: Now, I, I believe I commented on this, um, or, or I certainly would have um, thought, this when we spoke last, that uh, the, between the text and the online resources mm-hmm. uh, related to the text, including the video supplements, that this has all the makings, that the, the ingredients are in the kitchen to craft uh, a, a, a fully developed online sensory course. Mm. Now... <laughs> It seems to me that I'm not the only one who saw the ingredients on the counter and decided to make that dish. Uh, Because if I'm not mistaken, um, you are soon to be uh, launching um, an online session course. Is that the case?
1: Yes, indeed. Indeed, it was... um um, you know, as so many things in the world of Sanskrit, it was a you know very fortuitous um, turn of events. Um, uh, I am on a mailing list on which the founder of a wonderful um, site and program called um, Yogic Studies also happened to be. So this founder is is, is Seth uh, Powell, and um, he um, read an email of mine, and um, he apparently had hoped that um, uh, yogic studies at some point offer a you know, sort of full Sanskrit course and that whoever does it would use my book. And so he saw this email from me and said, you know, why not just you know, ask her whether she's interested? And indeed, she was interested. She was very interested. Um, I was quite thrilled when he contacted me because I think yogic studies is so well set up um, using um, all the you know, means that the internet um, uh, gives us for um, long distance teaching in a way that isn't impersonal, that isn't um, uh, sort of lacking um, the way in which um, a lot of non-in-person study is. And so we, we, we talked a couple of times and we basically developed this course that is going to start on Monday. And um, so it will you, use some... Could you just, yeah.
0: in, in, the, in the world of podcasts, they may not know which Monday you mean.
1: Oh, so, I am so like, sorry. This is Monday, the 1st of June,
0: 2020.
1: Um, uh, thank you, yes. <laughs> and um, uh, this is, uh, the site is yogicstudies.com, yogicstudies in one word. And you can find all the information about this particular course at yogicstudies.com slash Sanskrit. And basically, of course, I am going to be using um, some of the same elements that I'm using in my, in my free courses. However, the big difference is that for, for this yogic studies course, we have um, uh, actual online teaching, um, two 90-minute sessions a week. Um, so live teaching um, with me and everybody who's who's participating in the course, and also we have um, on the learning platform that they use. We basically have set up a a forum just for the members of this course, where myself and um, um, our wonderful TA um, are together going to be replying to people's questions as they arise. So um, the the one difference to a non to a sort of in-person course is that you know, people aren't sitting in the same physical classroom together, but um, we're going to be using um, Zoom. I'm, I'm, I hope I can say that on here without it being product placement, but Zoom has these wonderful things called, called breakout rooms where basically within a class, you can then allow people to just pair off in, well, in pairs or in small groups um, and do exercises together to discuss things and so on. So we are doing something that I think is as close to the actual classroom experience um, as, it, as it possibly could be. And um, uh, that, you know, both Seth and I have been uh, using the Internet for, for teaching, for long distance teaching for quite a while. Um, but now with um, with with Corona, lots of other people um, are realizing, you know, what the what the strengths of online teaching are. And um, uh, in these times when so many of us have to be uh, either are under lockdown or have to be self isolating, um, being able to offer a course that is so well, you know, prepared and based on so many years of experience, I think is going to be Something really, could be something really useful and really valuable for for quite a few people while they're waiting for things to get back to something more closely approaching the old normal. Uh,
0: Absolutely. Uh, There's so so many parallels. I ended up uh, defending in 2015. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 20, that year, the following year, I I was offered a... um, uh, your position, um, and for for reasons other than the position, the position was a good fit. But I just the intuition uh, just was insistent that I should stay put in Toronto. And then you know, a couple of months later, uh, the political landscape had shifted a great deal in 2016. As the world, as the world knows, yes. And, you know, I didn't. When I get that intuitive sense, I have to ignore this brain of mine and just listen to it because it it often knows, right? So. I thought, okay, well, I'll I'll see what I can do to make a living here in Toronto and stay in Toronto. Um, and continued my research uh, relatively successfully. And it was a question of, well, how do I teach? How do I add value? How do I support myself? And I ended up creating this this um, um, this brand of online education parallel to Ug studies. It was called power of myth. It was more for the comparative mythology crowd, mm-hmm. it was more for Continuing study students who are, who are maybe more familiar with uh, ancient Western traditions. I have since dissolved that um, because other projects kind of arose. But uh, I really do think that there's there is certainly uh, uh, there's certainly certainly online teaching is the way of the future, and the future is already here. And coronavirus is facilitating the impetus of destiny to get us to do things <laughs> from a distance. <laughs> And so, yes. um, it's I, I, at some point I have to chat with Seth about this this really interesting um, brand he's developed, and I completely understand what he's doing. Like, I was kind of alone in the wilderness. It was so apurvita. It was so like unprecedented <laughs> to be to be like I'm thinking, what am I doing? I'm I'm essentially funding my own research on a, a life consulting and online teaching career. Uh, path. and like, what is this? What am I doing? And now <laughs> coronavirus clinched it for me. I'm like, oh, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just a little ahead of the curve. That's all. Um,
1: I, so, yeah. I, I, I feel partly guilty that something that is causing so much, you know, so much pain, so much heartache, so much destruction um, is something that I am currently kind of profiting from.
0: Yeah. Well, um, well, but, yeah the, 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 you, you are offering it, it's not that you're going out and exploiting people offering some fake cure yeah it's that people need people really need to find ways to feed themselves uh, in these times more than physically I mean um, and you're offering that and irrespective of that I had students in Europe I had students in the states I am in Canada now um, mm-hmm. and coronavirus or not I mean we wouldn't have been able to have that experience if it wasn't for the online um, medium and so they're going to be people who you know things might be maybe in a year's time who knows things will be back to abnormal whatever that is uh, and, yeah
1: w- and, whatever that is
0: and nevertheless um some may be drawn to 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 your text and they may really want to study with you and the only way they can do that is online because they're certainly not going to hop on a plane right
1: at but least really, not for the foreseeable future, yes. However, even, I mean, I have even, to say even if the, the could, LMU where I teach at the moment is a lovely place and I can only recommend it to
0: anyone who has the, pos- the possibility of going. <laughs> and, but even coronavirus or not, I mean, folks don't have the bandwidth of the funds so to go flying to cities just to take courses. So it really does yes. open up the yes. world. It really, really does. And I, you know, I, uh, to be really honest, I was really prejudicial in 2015, 2016. I really felt that... I really and truly. Well, let me say a little bit uh, of why. You know, I had the good fortune of being part of a, of, a, of a lineage of, of experiencing Buddha and all of its glory, and mm-hmm. so it etched in me this 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 sort of um, this deeply entrenched, blazing experience of, of, of the height of of pedagogical transformation. So I was like, you know, there's online uh, courses. Who's in well, What can you get out of that? And then. You know, my eyes were opened. We had some very meaningful, profound experiences, classroom experiences online. All of my life consulting work now, even before coronavirus is done online. Uh, Some people prefer the telephone, but usually it's on Zoom. So we can see each other face to face. And um, profound, intimate, transformative experiences with people, uh, uh, people with whom I've never been in the same city, you know, and, and that's that's yes. mind-bending. You know, it's mind-bending.
1: I've had such close collaborations with people who I yet have to meet in person, um, and that that is possible is 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 wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And in my in my in my current class, so for example, I um uh, I, I left. I'm I'm still affiliated with Oxford, and I still have a fifty percent post there and a fifty percent post here in Munich. But I left Oxford to come to Munich to to teach here. Um, And um, I can still participate in things in Oxford because everything has gone online. So I can listen to seminars because they're online. I can participate in departmental meetings because they're online. Um, And uh, uh, I think part of what we're learning at the moment is that for some things online just is a very good replacement um, but we're also learning that for some things you really do need the face-to-face interaction. You need um, just um, to basically be in the same room as people.
0: Absolutely. Um, so back to back to the online course. Basically, mm. from what I understand, folks get live synchronous Zoom sessions, right? So some people build mm. up asynchronous courses. Um, I, in all of my teaching online, I, for me personally, I always preferred the synchronous dimension, even if lectures had to be recorded for people who couldn't attend, um, that's something I want to highlight. So in the course that you're offering, it's not just the students uh, or the learners uh, digesting great content, which itself would be very useful, I imagine, but there'll be a live, immediate experience um, as yes. we're having now. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. It's two, it's two lessons a week, um, and they're um, at... Now I need to. <laughs> I've got this in my Google calendar, which means I don't have it in my brain. It's Monday's um, 5 to 7 uh, 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 GMT. And um, it is Wednesday's um, 7 to 9 GMT. Um, and basically, we chose this slot because it means that um, we can cover a fairly large range of time zones, um uh, so people both from the from the continental u s and and also from 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 europe um and at least from the western parts of asia can can participate um uh, it does unfortunately mean that for anyone in australia and we do have people um, participating from australia it means that um if they want to participate live it would be in the middle of the night but uh the way we're doing it is that um uh, all the all the lessons are going to be recorded and are going to be made available within a couple of hours of um, them first happening um so that um, anyone can watch a lesson um you know whenever they want to they can re-watch it as many times if anything is unclear and um, i'm going to be using the lessons um, to to answer people's people's questions and sort of just discuss and go over the things that people may have had um issues with or things that they're you know more interested in want to know want to know more about and um, they can ask questions um, in the online forum and uh, then their questions will be discussed in the lessons, even if they cannot be there live for the lesson. So, you know, just because you are um, down under or you are in a time zone or uh, where you can't access the lesson easily or for whatever reason you can't be there that, that day, um, your, your specific concerns, your specific questions, your, your specific interests will still be addressed. That's the, that's the idea behind it.
0: That's lovely. I might enroll. I I think
1: it might it might be it might be a little too basic for you.
0: Just, just to sort of more
1: courses to come. Um,
0: Just to just to sort of um, you know, I'll be really honest. This is uh, I can't imagine how great it would have been to have this 15 years ago when I was starting. I don't begrudge it uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, nor certainly do I begrudge the experience of the students who will, um, as I say, if the, the seed is intent on sprouting. This oh. strikes me as fertile soil. Yeah.
1: Thank you, yes. And, and I have to say that so much of what I have done in my time as a as a Sanskrit teacher was because, based on sort of my own experiences, and thinking about what would I have wanted um, at the point where you, my dear students, are now? What would I have wanted? What would I have needed? Um, what was I maybe not really aware of needing? Um, so with you know the benefit of hindsight, I basically just tried to create for them the environment um, that that uh, that I didn't have um, while at the same time trying to recreate the the great things that i that I did have uh, I mean I am where I am because uh, throughout my life I've just had really inspiring and really great teachers
0: exactly. and, uh, I've,
1: I've never had any pro and any for any teacher training whatsoever all that I all that is good about my teaching is basically copying and pasting and combining ideas and input and inspiration that I've had since I you know first started going to first grade um quite a long time ago um, yeah
0: Sure, but there's the there's also the the ability to copy and paste and integrate and reiterate you know it, it, when I when I first started in 2015 I'd never taken a business course uh, really right uh, um, I'm, I'm a full-fledged entrepreneur now B- business was a dirty word to me it really was it really and truly oh, was a dir- dirty word to me it's in my worldview and sort of my my training and in my prejudices but I I've really come to see that what you talk about there in terms of you know, providing the value to, uh, a, 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 to a group or a person that you wish you had, right? Or, or you know yeah. that they would have. That is the essence of the entrepreneurial spirit. That's what it's about. Whether that's for money or not for money, that's it right there. It's providing value to people. It's like what what kind of life consultant would I have wanted when I was you know, at X age or X stage? What, what do I wish that person could have... Help me understand or uh, yeah exactly for me that's pre- that's precisely what it is right there it's that it's 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 a it's fundamentally uh, a, a really sort of sophisticated form of empathy which which I really respect now for the record I um, <laughs> this is not a paid advertisement <laughs> I'm not this is <laughs> I am not um, uh, <laughs> new books network hosts um, engage this work as a labor of love Uh and try to fit it in where they can in their schedules. Um, this is my second conversation with, with Antonia Rupo, uh, I assure you. And I have no dog in the game in terms of um, yogic studies. I'd be fascinated to learn more. You know, I wish them well. I think this is the way of the future. Um, this is just me saying to my listeners that, hey, if you've always wanted to learn Sanskrit, if you're interested, um, if you have any intrigue in the Bhasha and the language of the gods for uh, whether it's pronunciation, whether it's accessing, you know, systems of thought, uh, whether it's just, you know, you, you'll read a, a passage from the Mahabharata in five different translations and they're giving you five completely different ideas. And you're like, what do they mean? What is that? What, what is that noun they're translating? Oh, let me learn a little bit of Sanskrit. I can look at that noun and then have a much deeper sense of what they're trying to render to English. For any of you who have a remote interest in Sanskrit, why don't you check out this course? It starts Monday, June the 1st. Uh, you can then go to, we gave you the URL, URL earlier, but I'll give it to you now so that it's uh, top of mind. It's yogicstudies.com forward slash Sanskrit. Uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Antonia Ruppel of LMU Munich um oxford uh now yogic studies and the wonderful world of sensory studies in the west uh, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today
1: and with you thank you raj
0: you're welcome until next time uh stay safe keep reading keep listening learn Sanskrit.